Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here for the love of radio and sound. And hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. And today we're going to talk about the FCC because here at the end of 2019, the Federal Communications Commission is all about the radio right now. They've got a lot of things on their agenda that have to do with radio. We've talked about a little bit of it in the last couple of weeks, but there's more to review. Um, And they're they're all kind of little things, but they affect the kind of radio that we love here. And we think folks listening to this show love that affects kind of the the left end of the dial, not commercial radio, low-power FM, or, um, you know, and, and uh, the more the, interesting radio The future of how radio could sound in the, in the decade indeed, to come. Indeed. I think we are really looking at the way that, that radio could sound in the decade to come. That's a very good way of, of, of putting it out there. As well, um, we have a story about a possible revival <laughs> of a venerated radio publication it we're is, just going to tease it you is there. breaking news and it is vague it is breaking vague news but it's 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 uh <laughs> it's, it's still it's the best kind of, yeah it's the kind of vague breaking news that i'm all over and it, <laughs> clickbait but it could very well be uh, great news for people who love college radio yes or at least who care about it and jennifer uh you have a, a quick update for us all about the radio preservation task force Yes. Well, um, the the deadline is drawing near if you're interested in submitting a proposal for the next Radio Preservation Task Force conference. And that deadline is December 15th, 2019. The conference is taking place in fall 2020 at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. And they just extended this deadline. So if you have been slacking on it and you have an idea for a presentation about radio history and preservation or a panel idea or even something unusual. Someone reached out about possibly doing a radio drama, which sounded really cool. Uh, So now, now is the time if you've been slacking and want to participate in the next Radio Preservation Task Force event. Do I need to be a professor or something? To do this, is, is, is it, do I need to be a, a certified PhD holding academic to uh, submit a, a proposal? You do not. In fact, in fact, the last conference I attended, there were some interesting, there were some interesting panels and discussions featuring radio collectors, yeah, and and sort of bridging that. You know, sometimes it can seem like a divide between the uh, radio fan community and the academic world. And I know that they are attempting to bridge that divide. So there are definitely amateur historians who've taken part. I would I would count myself among that. I, I do not have a PhD and I'm on the task force. And and so yeah, anybody who is interested in radio history and is doing work in that area should take a look. We actually posted the call for papers on Radio Survivor and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Okay, go to the show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 223. As well as I'll put in a plug for a previous episode of Radio Survivor where we spoke with the, 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 the previous organizer of the Radio Preservation Task Force as well as uh, the, the individual that was about to take over the task of, uh, of organizing that task force. And uh, that was one of my favorite episodes, Neil Verma and Josh Shepard on Radio Survivor. 
Yes. Yes, and they and they sort of tease the conference. So if if you want to bone up on the conference, that's a good episode to listen to before you turn in your proposal on December 15th or by December 15th. That's right. Get a writing. December 19th is your deadline. Sorry, 15th or 19th? 15th. Sorry. Get writing. December 15th is your deadline. And now we're going to talk about the Federal Communications Commission, which I think most people have heard of it. It is the agency, the federal government, which oversees communications in this country, includes radio, television, aspects of internet, telephone, uh, all any kind of radio communications, satellite communications. They've got a lot of radio things on their agenda. It's always right now. I always want to like uh, emphasize the weird thing about the FCC is that it, to me it always seems like it has two heads. It has two minds. There's the bureaucratic mind, which is uh, consistent over uh, administrations. It doesn't matter who's president. The the bureaucracy moves forward with its work. Uh, but then there's also the second mind that is fascinating, which is a political mind. It is the president of the United States of America appoints the head of the FCC, and that person by necessity is is a political appointee and, and sets they, a lot of the agenda yeah, so, of what they're going to cover even though amongst the five commissioners they are split politically there'll be three from the party in power currently republicans and two from the party uh from the opposite party which is currently democrats and they all uh weigh in on on any really major change uh to any number of different things but this includes radio and it makes watching the fcc sort of this like bifurcated event where there's there's a lot of partisan politics and there's also a lot of uh, uh, nonpartisan radio policy bureaucracy and they they coexist when you follow the news of the FCC yeah and not everything well, has a political bent and well and it's an, an interesting if you think about it it's they're dealing with technology they're dealing with the media industry so there are all these different factors that that enter, enter into it. Like yeah. some things have to do with, you know, very technical things. Um, and then there are aspects that have to do with big business and money. Right. And in these, this day and age, uh, the available spectrum to broadcast all sorts of information, including voices on the radio, FM and AM radio, uh, as well as, uh, uh, you know, I'm not an expert, but I happen to know that like there's, there's lots of different spaces and different spectrums, and and they 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 have been up for grabs in the in the decades past, in the years past of like, well, we used to use the spectrum for for this communication, and now we're gonna, the technology has come along, and we're gonna yeah, like television, uh, unused television spectrum that that used to be like channels seventy through eighty three, uh, your UHF dial, yeah. which never really got used very much, uh, have been repurposed to be used for mobile broadband, for and instance. That, that happened. In the in the in the post to year two thousand, yeah, it's happened. In, it's happened within the last decade. Changes yes. changes to the broadcast spectrum that really impact uh, how it is used, and that's that's uh, what's on the table today. Well, so a few weeks ago, we introduced the idea that the FCC is looking at allowing AM stations to go all digital, to use HD radio technology. But instead, currently, most stations, uh, in fact, all stations that use HD radio technology have an analog and a and a digital signal. So it means if you have a radio that is fifty years old, it will pick up 
a station that broadcasts in HD radio. And if you have an HD radio capable receiver, they're mostly in cars. You can also get the digital side. Uh, the, the, the advantages sometimes to the digital channel is it's not uh, subject to the same types of interference. If you get the signal, it's, it's locks in, it's crystal clear, no buzzing, hissing or whatever else. No um, driving under traffic lights and having the signal go out. Uh, <laughs> maybe <depends>. not, maybe <laughs> not. Basically it is either you get the signal or you don't. Yeah. On the, AM uh, on, or AM or FM. Yeah. So just to be clear, Analog radios aren't going to be picking up those other HD channels, like if there's an HD2 or an HD3. That's correct, right? That's correct, yeah. It is always the case that um, a station that is broadcasting an HD radio on the FM dial is required to duplicate its analog program on its HD1 channel. Ah. So they're always the exact same programming. It's it's essentially, it, since it's... It's been around for how many years? It's been around about a decade. It's been around for about a decade. It's like a little hidden space on the radio for radio lovers who want to spend a little bit of extra money on a fancy radio to get free content. Almost, from- yeah. And it's mostly only car receivers. I mean, it's very difficult even to buy an HD. You can't walk into Best Buy or Walmart tomorrow and say, I want an HD radio. They're just going to look at you cross-eyed. Oh, you gotta. You really got to love radio. You got to know where to get one. But it's been. it's an interesting... Uh, species of fancy radio because it's still free Correct. to receive yeah. what, you know, it still exists. It's very much it, it, the analog is you think about the digital television transition right. that happened in 2009 and you got your main channels and all of a sudden you got these extra channels like me TV um, and various things like that. And those were all of a sudden new channels that were part of going digital uh, in 2009 the entire country was forced to go digital. The entirety of television just about moved to digital. Yeah. That's never happened in radio. So instead, we've had this hybrid technology called HD radio, which puts a digital signal sandwiched in with analog signals. Um, but stations at this moment in time are required to maintain their analog signal. They cannot go off the air to focus entirely on digital Correct. if they chose to. But the FCC is considering allowing AM stations to do this. And it's something we, we talked about a few weeks ago. And what's, what's happened here is the FCC has, uh, you know, at the time we knew they were talking about it. We didn't have a lot of details. Now we have more details. And specifically, this is what the FCC adopted in November was a notice of proposed rulemaking. So what this has often is the proposals for what they think this thing looks like, as well as questions that they put out to the public and to the industry. They ask, is this important? Should we consider this? What are people's thoughts on this? Which they then take back the comments. Uh, Then they look at them and they come up with a more refined proposal. That's how the process happened. So we now know a little bit more of, of what the FCC is looking at. What are they considering and what do they think is important in rules that may allow an AM station to go all digital? So, Paul, what are the questions that the FCC are asking about this proposal to uh, to change how the AM dial uh, sounds and is used in the United States? Well, its questions, you know, have kind of two aspects. One aspect is how does this affect a broadcaster? Um, will the changes they need to make, are they expensive? Will they be difficult to maintain if they want to go all digital? And the other half of it, luckily, is they're asking what is it for the listener? Right. You know, how will how will it change the listening experience? So one one big question is, if a station goes all digital on the AM dial, 
what will reception be like kind of on the fringes, right? So if you're on the fringe of a reception area and you're listening to analog radio, maybe it's not great, but maybe there's a station or a show you really want to hear from a more distant place and you're willing to put up with the noise and a little bit of interference to get it. And this can be particularly important to uh, communities out – I mean urban listeners might love a distant AM radio station, but I can imagine a situation where people who live outside of the big markets – uh, really might depend on AM stations to to get any information or entertainment at all in in certain places in the United exactly. States. Exactly. So so what would that effect look like? They're also asking: Should um, they perhaps allow more flexibility? Should they allow uh, AM stations to have those HD two or HD three channels like we talked about? Currently, AM stations cannot, and in part that's because. Uh, the bandwidth, how much data you can get on the AM band is significantly smaller than the FM band. And so if you take that little piece of the dial that an AM station takes up, which has both analog and digital right now, if it's HD, it's tiny, tiny, tiny. But if it goes all digital, it gets a little bit bigger. And so the question is, should they allow maybe an AM station to have multiple channels? Different channels. Uh, All oldies on this one, all talk (laughs) on that one. It's not a and, all Rush Limbaugh Paul, on this one, all Sean Hannity on the other. Well, yeah, I know that's, with, that is we, so. With the all digital proposal, then there would no be an, there would be no analog counterpart, correct? For that station, yeah, it'd so be they, a choice they could make. The station that can make this choice, they would it would not be required. So there would there could still be analog stations on the AM dial, but if a station made the choice to go all digital, there would be no analog counterpart it means that your analog radio would no longer receive that station so the FCC- you think oh go ahead jennifer this is an interesting idea about having the other channels like having an am hd2 hd3 i wonder do you think that's a possibility that there could be stations that retain their analog signal but then add digital no. signals no no there's not enough bandwidth so the the, the as i was just sort of saying if you're an HD radio and you're an AM, you have an analog signal and you have a digital signal sandwiched into the same space. Oh, so it's already tight. That an analog signal takes up, right? And so there is no space to add additional channels. Unless there. they cut off the the analog signal. The, the analog. Got the, it. The, and that's only conceivable. The traditional signal that is easier to get yeah. with the clock radio that grandma used to have. And this is only a question, though. The FCC has not proposed it. They said, should that be? Up, 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 up well, in the offering. Right. I have another weird question that might not be uh, answerable with real data right now, but uh, it would. How, is this really something that AM stations would want to do? It seems like they lose their entire audience if they if they made them buy extremely expensive radios on the internet. Well, so here's the question, right? And you know that's one of the biggest questions about the, about the audience. Expensive? They're more expensive than well, no, grandma's I mean, clock so, radio. It, at the thrift store. Right. So what we're talking about here is that most HD radios are car radios. So 55 million HD capable car receivers have been sold. This is sold. It is unknown how many are in operation, like how many are still in the cars, how many are, you know, cars that have been junked or whatever. But we know that since they've become available, there's 55 million sold. Estimates on how many they're actually out there in use are much lower. And that's really who they're thinking about. Yeah. We have to really, when we're talking about AM digital radio, 
we're n- we're really not talking about people listening at home. And, Be- th- and it's and, like and expensive like, cars, right? I mean, I, no, not I, necessarily. A cheap car could also have a, a fancy radio nowadays. I mean, I wouldn't make any assumptions. Yeah. I would not make any assumptions, but it would have to be. Either you have to go get an aftermarket unit, so so at my, car toys or something. So my silly question was, uh, would they be losing audience? And and the answer is we don't know, but it's possible to imagine. Well, that's a part world of the question that they could get a cool that that this change could bring in a different yeah. audience and excite. And that is one of the FCC's questions. What is the estimated size of this audience? Because AM right? is a pretty sleepy art form of uh, uh, industry in the year two thousand and twenty in America. It's not. It's not uh, growing as fast as podcasts. Well, I and mean, our, radio and, and in general is not growing. <laughs> and something I'm thinking about is, so the current HD listeners are listening to FM HD. Not and necessarily. are those the type of folks who not necessarily. also I mean, listen to AM? Yes, of course. I mean, there are AM HD stations, so they are listening. I mean, from a listener standpoint, you are not an HD listener. If you have a car radio that gets HD radio, and if there's an HD radio signal present, it picks it up. That's the experience. So, right. for instance, Which I was... can be happening on AM right now as well. It, is, it does. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, I was uh, in New Jersey recently driving my parents' car. My dad has a Subaru Ooh. late model that has HD radio-capable receiver. Um I was listening to uh, 880 WCBS in New York, which is like the big one of the big news stations to get the traffic information. And that is a AM station. AM station. And as I was driving guy. around, I could hear it going between HD and analog signals because oh. all of a sudden it would get quiet and it would be a little bit better fidelity and then it would fade back into being analog. That's the experience. Neat. So for the most part, I don't think we we can say there are HD radio listeners in that they're oh, choosing yeah. it. It's not like you can say they're like a Netflix viewer. Rather, they're in cars that have these receivers, and if the receiver can pick up the HD signal, it does. Yeah, it is a totally unique media experience that we don't have a good metaphor for. It, it, right. It's fun. Yeah. So, well, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, who... Who are the HD listeners who go out and purposely buy an HD standalone radio? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, have than, one, yeah. I, have, yeah. I have one. Yeah, I have one example. Other than radio survivor <laughs> stalwarts. Yeah. And well, hosts and I, I have an example. Um, there are some stations that have lost an FM signal and have been offered an HD two signal, for example. Yes, so in college radio. I know is that. Yeah, yeah. So and I, so I know of a college radio station college radio. that. You know, they they did a promotion because they were now on this HD2 signal. And so they did a promotion where they were giving away a bunch of HD radios so that people could listen to their station. That's And that's a really cool uh, opportunity for a station that sort of got squeezed off the air to get back on the air. And we don't really know, you know, I mean, there's no one tracking this. But I think we can sort of say anecdotally that the number of people who go out and specifically buy an HD radio that's not in a car is tiny. And we know this because you can't walk into a store just about anywhere in the United States and say, please give me an HD capable radio. What we need, if I might be a little bit silly, uh, is we need one of these uh, fancy phone manufacturers to put HD radio in the phone. And and they're unlikely to because they're taking the AFM chips out. Uh, the radio industry has given up their campaign huh. to get to get smartphones because the industry really did not respond, and the FCC refused to make it required. So uh, it's really it's a, a backwards real shame. track. It's a real shame. We, now, I mean, you really could have had a data free 
uh, HD experience on our phones and, you know, to it listen be, to it, local radio. And on, that is true. On your pocket The thing devices. to note, though, about we I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of way off on a tangent, yeah. but I'll finish this and I'll bring <laughs> us back. The thing to note about HD radio is that the digital signal is broadcast at a significantly lower power level than the analog ah. signal. And that's because you're putting 10 pounds of sugar in a five pound bag and sugar be spilling out all over the place and onto other people's uh, bags of sugar. The signal would bleed. Would bleed, right, and cause interference. Yeah. So the listening experience of being able to get an HD signal on a little tiny receiver inside your smartphone might not be so great. Okay. might be frustrating. But, it might not work. So one well. of the, but I'll, I'll bring us back as well to one of our themes of radio survivor is that the reason we're even talking about the possibilities as well as the, the actual proposals that is at the FCC uh, right now to change the AM radio dial is that all of this is, has always been in play for the 100-year history of radio as well as next year. Uh, decisions are being made that will change how radio yeah. sounds. And all of these changes happen slow enough that if you're not watching carefully, it can just appear to be uh, market forces acting in their right. natural Darwinian Whereas form. there was actually a lot of consideration um, and there was an opportunity for the public to comment and to tell the FCC what they think. And I think, you know, again, to these questions of how it affects communities and audiences, the FCC is asking uh, one big question is that should they require a station that wants to go all digital to demonstrate it is not the only full service station within its community of license. Oh, wait, let's say that again. So I, they're, the, what I think I know what I What heard, they want to make sure is let's take a rural county where maybe there is one station that is heard clearly and is basically the full service station. And, and what does that mean? It means weather often. It means emergency alerts. Yeah, safety in, in case you know, of there's a fire a, there's or tornado. Tornado, fire, or other sort of emergency, right? Should the FCC say, if your station is that station, you can't go all digital because you will immediately count out some percentage of the audience. Yeah. Yet really unknown what percentage that would be, but it would mean most people's home radios at the very least, would probably stop being able to receive your signal. So that is a question that the FCC is looking is, is at asking. in this issue of whether or not they're going to allow for AM stations to switch off their analog signal in favor of digital, which is currently not uh, allowable. Yeah. And they're asking the big question, would preserving the long-term economic viability of an AM station and the supposed public benefit yeah. of going digital justify the loss of service to those analog oh, listeners. What an interesting question. Right? I mean, but they're asking, it's good to know that the FCC is asking these questions yeah. about how it will affect listeners, not just only considering the benefits or 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 the or how it will affect broadcasters in all of this. So these are the questions that the FCC is putting out there. There it is not yet out to the public. The, it, that will happen when this uh, is published in the Federal Register which is the official publication of the United States government. And once that happens, there will be a 30-day window in which you and I, broadcasters, uh, anyone who's interested in this can tell the FCC what they think. Yeah, and we've learned from Matthew Lassar that those comments uh, have a little bit more weight in this world than the uh, call your senators to tell them that you how you feel about this issue because comments to the FCC on issues such as these uh, actually go into the record and then become uh, – Part of the uh, oftentimes inevitable court cases 
that can then actually decide these policies once and for all legally. Um, these comments do matter, especially when they're and you'll uh, see them quoted. Yeah, you will see in- them quoted, and, and and sometimes you'll see. You know, we've received you know uh, dozens of comments of this sort, and they'll quote one of them. Yeah, um, it really does go into the record. It really does make a difference. Paul, a few weeks ago, when we talked about this issue, prior to um, the, the 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 more information being available about what the FCC is actually doing, you had made a suggestion that there are that there is a potential for uh, businesses who own this spectrum on the AM dial. And who are interested in switching to a digital only uh, may also have other yes. business models, like like broadcasting uh, digital only weather information, perhaps. Correct. Yeah. So that you could only, uh, which would not be a listening experience; it'd be like a reading experience on a right. on a, on a HD radio. HD radio has the ability to send data. Um, the way you'll experience it often in a car radio these days is you may be listening to an FM music station and it'll display the song and the artist and often even the, a cover art for uh the for this for the CD or album that you're hearing. Yeah, and this is a really interesting uh you know, you can imagine a world in which there'd be really uh useful to get information over the AM airwaves that But it may also mean gives you a map but could you imagine a station that no longer really exists to be an audio service and is there mostly as a service to provide data? And so you're really no longer getting anything of value on the audio side yeah. because they're selling so the that, data side. Did the FCC address that at well, all? Well, no, not, not directly, but it's more in the should there be flexibility about that data the ability to send data over the AM station, uh, digital side. Um, there is one all digital AM station currently in operation. It has special authorization from the FCC to test this idea. Neat. WWFD in Frederick, Maryland. Okay. And not a rural station, you know, not rural. Frederick is not, uh, it is not, I just think cause part Maryland, of the DC Maryland metro. is small enough. Yeah, that, uh, well, there are parts of Maryland that are more rural, sure. but it is it is a it is a you know not the densest urban part of Maryland. So this station is the only all digital AM station uh, in the United States. And the FCC notes that there has been significant improvement in audio quality and signal re- robustness. They also note it required many expensive upgrades, mm. and that. They continue to have problems with the all digital capabilities, specifically in the data portion, huh. that they're having difficulty sending the song and artist visual metadata. And they also note that the National Radio Systems Committee has not evaluated this. And the National Radio Systems Committee does is is basically the body that looks at something like the whole standard for HD radio and gives a stamp of approval. Cool. Well, I'm glad we talked about AM digital radio. Jennifer, do you have another question? Oh, I'm just, I, I have so many questions about the station that you probably can't answer, but, you know, I, I, I wonder who their audience is and yeah. no, how they're doing economically. So we'll, we'll just but, put, you know, a, we'll put by not a being analog radio survivor bookmark into, yeah. here's a cool station that we want to know more about. What is it called again? WWFD. WWFD, the only digital AM radio station. Uh, let's learn more soon. Yeah. You're listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reesmanel. You just heard the voice of Eric Klein. And with us from San Francisco is Jennifer Waits. And I want to take this to another topic. You know, we're talking about this idea that an AM station that goes all digital could be more there for the data 
then for the the radio, then for the sound. Sending maps, basically, instead of broadcasting Well, that's words. a lot like another service that exists in a kind of, in a loophole, in a gray area. Sometimes they're called Franken-FMs. I've called them backdoor FMs. And these are TV stations that broadcast a radio signal on Channel 6. So Channel 6 analog TV stations bump up at the, at the bottom end of the FM dial. And so you can hear their audio program at about 87.7 FM. So this would be, you know, in, in, a, in a city where there was a Channel 6, you, and you, if you had a radio that went that low. and Well, these stations are still there. Yeah. Low-power television stations. And, you could, and this station, you know, if, if they were broadcasting the Twilight Zone, you, you could accidentally listen to the Twilight Zone. But since that accident uh, has existed for a long time, there are stations that you've taught me about, Paul, that uh, are doing this accident quite on purpose. It's their business model. Right. Low-power television stations were not required to go digital in 2009. There's, many of them are still analog. And throughout the country, there's a collection of them on Channel 6 that are operating as FM stations. The, the, probably the best-known one is, is MeTV Radio in Chicago, broadcast on a low-power television channel 6. It's so popular, it shows up in Nielsen ratings. For radio stations. For radio stations. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's an exception in that way. Uh, and, and it is now the case that they have syndicated this format out to actual FM stations around the country. It was a weird oh, little... Paul, Paul, can you remind us what MeTV is playing over their radio 87.7 in Chicago? This this higher-rated uh, TV station on the radio. They, they're playing basically kind of a forgotten oldies format. So it's oldies, but, you know... If you've ever noticed, if you listen to an oldie station in in like Kansas City, and then you listen to one in Houston, they're kind of playing the same stuff, and it's, it's basically the same repetition. a thousand songs. I haven't studied this, but it yeah, sounds like, like that. it. There's certain Motown hits, certain certain disco hits, but really not. Uh, you know, there's there's a deeper. There's deeper wider catalog, catalog yeah. that's not and, being broadcast. And so what MeTV plays is uh, they play kind of the oldies, you know, plus a lot of like one hit wonders. Uh, a lot of things that were maybe big hits in 1972, but for whatever reason, never ent- entered the oldies canon and haven't been repeated yeah. to death. Back, back when Paul taught me about this channel, I found a YouTube of a man driving through his car in Chicago, listening to it, a Gen X individual. And the the YouTube is is, a, is entirely edited of, of this individual uh, uh, having delightful bursts of nostalgia at each song because every song reminded him of the memory of first and he the wasn't song. used to hearing it on the and, radio yeah, and none of these songs were, were right. broadcast so that's that's one example of this okay however there is an end in sight ah low power television channels are permitted to continue their analog broadcasts only until july 3rd of 2020 that's very soon. That's very, very soon. Aww, so the, the end of another era. The Media Bureau at the FCC is asking, well, should we allow them to continue? Oh, it's not a done deal. It, nothing is ever a done deal, Paul, my friend. Can I ask you can I ask you how you feel like as an individual? I know that we at Radio Survivor have uh have gotten cute about how much we love these stations. I know that that you written about them and then made friends with other people on the internet who also loved these stations. But beyond our sentimentality, do these stations matter? 
I mean, that's not a question I, I can answer. Uh, I mean, honestly. To you, do they matter? I, you know, I have very mixed feelings about them. Yeah. I have very mixed feelings because it's a, it's a loophole. These aren't radio stations. Right. They are television stations. Um, and, and the fact and they, that... And they can play things like commercials, right? Because it's a TV station. Yes, Is that right. right. Exactly. Um, they are commercial. And, you, and, and they're really not functioning as television stations, right? So they're not broadcasting a video program that's of much use. The, the video program is perfunctory, essentially. And, and if you think about efficiency... Um, most of the power they're consuming and using goes huh. into broadcasting the video signal. So in a lot of ways, it's like the world's most inefficient low-power FM. And yet unique stations are on the dial because of this crazy loophole. Right. Some of them are unique, yes. There are some unique stations out there on the dial because of this loophole. So I mix feelings because of the fact that the FM dial is otherwise uh, very crowded and it's hard to find space. Yeah. Uh, I might propose a better idea would be to, because uh, in going digital that would free up some space at the left end, uh, left end of the dial, why not expand the FM dial? Why not add more space for legitimate low power FM stations uh, that would be much that could be brought in there and maybe own that part of the dial? I could think of a lot of other ways it might be creatively used. You know, it's interesting that there's this loophole and these stations exist, but I think it is an open question as to whether they should be permitted to continue. And so one of the the questions that uh, the FCC asks is that, well, you know, I don't think that they're thinking about forestalling the digital TV transition. They want the low-power TV stations to go all digital. The question is, should these Channel 6 stations be permitted to continue broadcasting the analog audio signal? So should they go digital and then have this little sideband where they're broadcasting their analog audio signal since they've already made a business out of it ostensibly? Interesting. The other question is, is this something that that stations are just being grandfathered into? Or... Would someone be able to propose a new low-power Channel 6 TV station and also get that benefit? That's a question out there. And they ask, fundamentally, is having an analog broadcast signal consistent with their federal mandate? And it is a mandate made by Congress in law that digital TV stations are there for the provision of advanced television services. That is the law. The law which forced everyone to go digital in 2009 except for these franken fm tv well and and it wasn't that and and the idea wasn't that 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 they would never go digital the idea was their low power um will give them more time they were given special low power tv when it was created was created as a way to get a television station on the air for less money both for the the physical plant for the actual transmitter as well you know and, right. and the energy costs and so given that presumption they would need more time to make that digital transition we talk a lot on radio survivor about our love and the power of low power fm radio stations imagine if we if we began to to look into low power television as well low power television not is not non commercial yeah. It, it, a lot of a lot of them are like home shopping network or QVC. Too bad. Um, so the way it worked out isn't necessarily what people had anticipated when the yeah. service was first proposed. But again, you can imagine a world in which uh, the bureaucracies that currently run these spectrums, if they if they prioritized community uses 
of low power TV airwaves, uh, you know, that you could have a, a use of low power television that, that we here at Radio Survivor found a little bit more uh, interesting and enticing than just home shopping channels. Yeah. So they are asking a question. Should the Franken FMs continue to exist? Cool. And if so... Should new stations be allowed to do that? And so we'll 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 tell you more when uh, when it's time to be able to comment on that question. So we're catching up on some news out of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, on Radio Survivor today because uh, they've actually been uh, moving the balls forward on radio stories. What else is going on? We got one more story, and then we're going to talk about the possible revival of a, of a valued. Uh, journal in college radio back from the dead question Possibly mark back from the dead <laughs> we'll see yeah so alongside this uh, proposal to allow am stations to go all digital the fcc is also uh looking at overturning a rule which limits the extent to which am and fm stations can duplicate programming can simulcast so since 1992 there's a rule in place that says an AM and FM station can duplicate no more than 25% of their programming in any given week. Okay. And the idea was there to promote diversity, right? To be sure that there's lots of options there on the dial. And this is prevented when then there's substantial either overlap between the signal area, meaning the AM and FM station are basically covering the same area, or they are commonly owned. There's significant common ownership. So this is and, and, and really the idea is is that, you know, someone might say, well, we got AM signal, we got FM signal. We'll just put put the FM signal on the AM signal and forget about it because that allows us to keep the license. But, it you know, it doesn't cost any more to run it. Um, and, and that's why that rule was was sort of put in place. They're now proposing to either get rid of the rule altogether or to modify that rule. To, and they're asking, uh, is it still true? that this limiting duplication leads to programming diversity. Hmm. Is there more diversity on the dial because of this? And a lot of people are probably sitting there going, hey, wait a second. The other day, I remember hearing uh, this AM station, this talk station on my FM dial. Why is that allowed to happen? And the answer is it's not a full power station. AM stations are currently allowed to have translator repeater stations stations on the the FM FM dial. dial. But those are low power stations, 250 watts or lower. So they're not a full power station. And the idea is it's supposed to help fill in or complement where the AM reception is poor. Yeah, fill in the cracks in in urban areas or hilly places. That's the idea, ostensibly, yes. Um, And they're also asking, well, you know, maybe if we don't get away, do away with the rule, maybe we raise the limit. Could stations duplicate 50% or more? Um, of of their of their signal, or should we take into account uh, the extent to which they overlap? Meaning, if they overlap less, maybe we should allow more duplication. And again, you know, the idea of this rule was to promote diversity. Early on, back in the '60s, when the FM band was not well populated, the FCC uh, prevented AM stations from repeating their program on FM because uh, they basically said, "No, we want FM to develop into a unique service." Right, not just a slightly better quality version of what you have on AM, because they wanted to promote its use. They wanted to promote people 
having incentive to go out and buy FM radios, thinking they would not be likely to upgrade to FM if all they could hear was the same programs. But if they could hear new music programs and higher fidelity and eventually stereo, they would, they would have that incentive. So there's this history of uh, the FCC uh, restricting the duplication of content uh, between different channels in the same city or area. There's another era of radio history for us to uh, dive into in the forthcoming uh, weeks and years of Radio Survivor. We never really have done the uh, the emergence of FM into the into the. We would we Gene would pool. need that help. What a good we, one. We would need help on that. So but if you can a, help yeah. us on that, drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. I do want to tease next week. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals tossed out all of the FCC ownership regs since oh 19 my. since 2016 this week. So we will talk with Professor Christopher Terry on next week's show who's going to update to us. And this is sort of the nuclear option he mentioned. It happened because, you know, when we last talked to Christopher Terry, he informed us how the Third Circuit Court of Appeals tossed out the most recent attempts by the FCC to mostly loosen ownership regulations in radio and television. Um, The FCC appealed that decision on Bonk. So that means to the entire Court of Appeals. uh, So normally in the Court of Appeals, there's three judges who hear a case. If you don't like that and you appeal it, then all the judges in in the appeals court hear it. There's mm. more than three. They denied it. They said, no, we will not hear this appeal. And moreover, we're nullifying. Wow. And and this is important because this is a was a twelve year long struggle over the rules. It's been No, quite this is a, nearly a twenty year struggle. Yeah, it's been quite a uh like uh, the hidden struggle behind the scenes of the future of the media. Uh, and we here at Rated Survivor spend a lot of our time, when our weekly show, and as well as the website covering the Federal Communications Commission. So this has been something that. Uh, and each time the court has, has said, you know, you haven't done your homework. You're proposing loosening rules without justifying the, the, the benefit and, and justifying what the effect would be. And the court keeps sending it back to the FCC. Do it over. Yeah. Do it over. And the FCC keeps not doing it. And so right now the FCC has the choice. Uh, do they try to appeal to the Supreme Court? Or do they actually do their homework and go back and start from scratch? Wow. Well, and Chris, next week, yeah. uh, Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, he's a professor of media law, will help us understand better what's at stake. You know, Christopher Terry has joined us on Radio Survivor, I'm going to guess almost a dozen times at this stage. And each step along the way, each episode where Christopher joins us has been another uh, uh, link in a very interesting chain you can wear around your neck and know more than your friends about the FCC and media ownership rules. Uh, I should mention as well on Radio Survivor, we love radio history and we delve into into stories of uh, radio across the globe. We also love radio across the, the world, how it's made and who makes it. We, uh, we really care about non-commercial radio, the community radio, volunteer-run radio stations, as well as we spend a lot of our time and energy on uh, college radio because of how much uh, – what an interesting and important and oftentimes overlooked part of the history of radio in the United States. Uh, college radio has always been there, and our resident expert, Jennifer Waits um, – has always kept us honest as far as that goes. Uh, Jennifer, we have we have news. 
We do have news. Just when you think everything is all quiet, news pops up that a longtime college radio institution that that had essentially died a few years ago may be coming back, and and that would be CMJ. And it's the it's very vague at this point. Right. Um, well, before we get into how vague it is, I think I would like for you to just explain what CMJ was what it meant to the college radio community before it disappeared uh, mysteriously in the recent past. But before it disappeared, it had a huge role to play. Tell us about that role. Yeah, so CMJ, originally College Media Journal, it it was basically a linkage between college radio and the music industry. So they published a publication, they created charts, so they asked, college radio stations to contribute their lists of the top spins at their stations. And then they would publish these charts that then they would sell to people in the music industry. And they also produced events, the CMJ Music Marathon, which was a big festival and a conference that happened in New York City right. every fall. And that was an opportunity for people in college radio and musicians and people from record labels would all convene in New York for panel discussions and then tons and tons of music showcases all over New York City. Right. And and, and what were the dates? What were the rough what was this this is generations long work the college Oh yeah, so wait, wait, wait. you know beginning CMJ College Music Journal. So it was founded in 1978 and 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 then its first marathons, these first you know music conference type events, were in the early 1980s. And the the original owners sold the company in 2014, and right. and that's pretty much when things really started to go downhill. Right. So, but so before, CMJ. Before we get to the bad spot, one more time, because <laughs> we do have time to talk about it before we get to the weird. Yeah, uh, go the CMJ going dark. I just want to underline that when it was around, especially you you know in the 1980s and 90s, CMJ uh, really was the, the 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 paper of record. It's like the right? billboard of college radio. And this is a time yeah. when college radio really was making a significant you know verifiable contribution to music culture. Yeah, and this was you know this was how you know as a college radio station that was how you. That was your um, connection to the music culture and this, or the music industry. So, you know, before the internet, um, you know, this is how you would communicate what you were playing at your station so that people at record labels, you know, know what you're playing and then know what kind of music to send you as far as promotional items. Um, and it was part of this whole kind of networking system. And, and personally, I, I was a music director at my college station in the 1980s, so... I remember how important it was for us to compile our our charts every week and I would tally people's playlists at the station and right. send off my chart. I guess I probably faxed it um, to CMJ and then it would appear in their magazine, in their print magazine. And then people at record labels would see that we were playing certain bands and then that would lead to music being sent to our station. Yeah, and, and, and we were essentially told at the time that we wouldn't get music if we didn't huh. chart with CMJ. And just one more time to underline why this story matters to us is it, it's sort of a Gen X um, 
a fact. It's a it's a known fact that college radio really uh, moved the needle towards like tastes in other directions. Like alternative music wouldn't be what it was on MTV if it wasn't for college radio well, spinning it's, records. It's because a label could see how this music that maybe was not going to get played on pop music radio or mainstream rock radio, how it was gaining a popularity. Right. So if it sees that there's yeah. there's dozens and dozens of college radio stations that are playing this music, a label may say, well, you know, we might spend more to promote it. It's back when college radio really functioned as a musical underground uh, in the United States. Yeah. And, and so CMJ would um, they would have all these college radio station reporters, they called them, and we would all send in our charts and then they would compile these master lists of you know, what was played on college radio in any given week. And they did genre-based charts, too, for... Yeah, there would be blues and world music. It wasn't just uh, rock music. Yeah, hard, you know, there was like a heavy, I forget what, heavy, which was like metal and hard, Yeah, you know, harder rock music and country. It makes and me so- want to dig into those lists today as a... As a musical historian, I think they're in Google Books. Yeah. I think you can go check look it them all. Up. Check out the the you can find some of them. List. And so the CMJ compiled these lists. They mattered. They still matter as a historical document. But it all went dark very recently. Yeah. So that I mean that was part of it is the charting. Um, you know, the publication back in those days was also a place where a lot of um, musical debates would play out. They had really active letters section or um, I forget what it was called, but music reporters, college radio music directors could write in um, talking about things that mattered to them. And I remember some dramatic debates would would play out on the pages of CMJ also. So it was it was a place where people came together both in the publication, but also at at these annual conferences and festivals that they would put together. So, you know, all of that was really a rallying point for people in college radio. And um, since it hasn't existed the past few years, there are actually probably a lot of of young people in college who might not even know what CMJ is, which, which right. is interesting when you think about from, for many of us, CMJ was just a staple of our college radio experience. Right, because the lead that I wouldn't let you report until we described why it mattered so much is that CMJ went, uh, went out of business. It was a a not fully understood uh, story of how they went under, why they went under, and who well, and it changed yeah. ownership, took them right? under. Yeah, but it, it happened. Let's just put a period on that. It, it, they stopped publishing, and then, uh, what was it, mere hours ago, we found hints that they could be coming back. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was sort of this slow death where, you know, the cmj music marathon didn't happen right you know the last year it happened was 2015 and it did not happen in 2016 and you know the charts eventually stopped being published in early 2017 and then eventually you know cmj wasn't posting anything on social media anymore their website wasn't being updated so you know the the last tweet that they had was in june 2016 and so then suddenly on December December 5th, 2019, there was a tweet from the CMJ account. So that, you know, that is the news, basically. It's, it's <laughs> the a, news it's, is the tweet. <laughs> the news is that there's a tweet and a website. And, and what and, did the tweet say? Uh, the tweet is indicating that they're back. Um, the tweet says, 
After a long break, CMJ is under new management and relaunching in 2020. More news soon. CMJ.com. Info at CMJ.com. And then a complete so, refusal I, I've read on Twitter uh, to say more, to say much more. So who's there? Well, so so who, who's running the ship then? We don't know. And there are, um, you know, a, a number of publications have reached out to them and right. And and they're responding. They're responding on social media, and they're emailing people back. I emailed them yesterday, and they wrote back to me ah. that that you know they'll they'll probably get back to me in January. Um, <laughs> what was your email question? Oh, I I mean, I sent a long email saying, "Hey, I see you're back. I'm curious, you know, who you are, and um, you know, want to find out what's going on. I've written about CMJ over the years. I've attended the events and." Uh, and so, yeah, basically, I, I didn't get any more information than anyone else, but they but they said they would definitely reach out to me and would want to talk to me in the new year. Uh, so, I mean, they have been they've been responding on Twitter and and kind of releasing bits and pieces of information. They're saying that they have no relation to the folks that ran CMJ before. And why is that of, important? Well, the the last owner of the company um, did not pay a lot of people uh, in those closing years. And employees, in fact, a, you mean? Excuse me. Employees, they didn't pay. It, Who did? Yeah, they employees pay? and potentially uh, there may be more people than employees that weren't paid. Um, but there, there was specifically a lawsuit filed by former employees. Right. And so in the chain of ownership, as this uh, as this media organization floundered. Uh, one link in the chain, one owner, uh, the last owner, the last owner, uh, didn't pay people and sort of who, who uh, soured really, their reputation you know, he, pretty, pretty badly. Yeah. Adam Klein, Abaculi Media, um, they bought CMJ from CMJ Holdings in 2014. So, and, and, you know, obviously very quickly things went downhill because we started to hear about people not getting paid at the yeah. end of 2015. So, um, you know, it was a very short, a very short part of CMJ's history, uh, which is really kind of tarnished by this final owner. And so a lot of people are responding about the return of CMJ, asking if people are going to get paid back. Um, also, people who used to subscribe to CMJ are asking about, you know, I was paying for CMJ and, and CMJ did not fulfill, uh, you know, what I was expecting from my subscription because, you know, the charts cease to exist events yeah. didn't happen so a lot of people are 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 writing to the new folks asking these questions and and they have been responsive saying that you know we hope to right some of these wrongs you know we're a different group of people um one of the tweets is we understand that totally justified unhappiness. This is a okay. brand new company with no connection to the former regimes. And we are working on ideas to try to right those wrongs, however. And Jennifer, it sounds like one of the things that you're most excited about with the return, the possible return of CMJ to its previous uh, uh, glory and space in the cultural landscape for college radio are the, the live music events, you, that those were, those were important to you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what I'm most... I mean, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, I would say, you know, it's, or I'm intrigued, I'm intrigued to see what's going to happen. Because, you know, the most recent owner was trying to introduce some new things and introduced regional CMJ events, which 
uh, we attended in Portland uh, back in 2015. Uh, they So CMJ in the past only did these big events in New York City right. every year. And so they were experimenting with, how about if we do smaller events in different cities, which I thought was really cool. But, uh, you know, that didn't pan out. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic and, and hope that they figure out some sort of model for CMJ to work. I, I do I, think that... I have a loaded question, though, Jennifer. I mean, yes. do we need CMJ now? That's a good question. I don't want you to answer that because we're running out of time. But uh, stay tuned to radiosurvivor.com as well as this program. Uh, we will definitely be following the future of the College Music Journal and its potential return uh, to, to the websites, to the prints, to the surveys, to the, to the physical spaces of our country. So, Jennifer, so we're going to leave it on that question mark note. That's yeah. – wow. Jennifer- Hello, Radio Survivor listeners. This is Eric Klein, your podcast and radio producer, jumping in here as an editor to let you know that if you are interested in listening to Jennifer Waits' nuanced and uh, very well-reasoned response to Paul's um, question, to Paul's nuanced and very reasonable question, uh, do we need CMJ now, now that CMJ has been gone, for these many years and college radio has uh persevered has been fine without it as it would as it were um what does jennifer think of that question and despite the fact that as a radio producer i would not allow jennifer to answer that question on the airwaves because we are running out of time and there's uh my knowing my friend very well they would not have a uh a one minute answer they would definitely have what turned out to be about a 15-minute answer, a conversation between uh, Paul and Jennifer especially about the um, what did college media journal mean? Uh, and, and with it gone, uh, when it comes back, what, uh, what does that mean? And again, um, we are providing that content to our supporters on the Patreon page, which means that if you are interested in listening to it and you are available uh, to give us a dollar, then we will allow you to hear that content. One dollar a month is what we're asking for for our um, Patreon-only content. Of course, if you're available to give us more than one dollar, people who gave five dollars this summer uh, were received a zine that we created, the first Radio Survivor zine. We had such a great time. We had such a great response from our uh, Patreon supporters who who received the zine in the mail that we are certainly going to do it again. So join us at the $5 level, and when we announce the next zine, you can uh, definitely be um, first on the list to receive yours. But that all being said, I just want you to know that uh, the 15-minute answer to Paul's fun question, do we need CMJ, is available on the Patreon. And uh, I'll let you know that Jennifer does not give a yes or no, black or white, binary answer. It is a extremely shaded gray, nuanced, hedged answer, which considers all of the angles. And really, we can't predict the future, but we talk about what CMJ uh, did provide and what it may be able to provide, but who also um, filled in these gaps in the college radio culture and charts uh, when they when they left the scene. So so that's what's available on the Patreon episode linked to today's broadcast. And now I'll bring you back 
to the conclusion of our podcast today. Thank you so much. So, Jennifer, so we're going to leave it on that question mark note. That's yeah. Wow. Jennifer's uh, coverage of this can be found every Friday in College Radio Watch at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, for the College Radio Watch dated December 6th, she particularly takes up uh, the history and this issue. So you can definitely learn more. You can learn more about everything we talked about on today's show at our show notes. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Look for episode number 200. In 23, we'll be talking to Professor Christopher Terry about the FCC's latest failure at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And in two weeks, we'll be all coming together, all four of us, including uh, Professor Lassar, Professor Matthew, Matthew, Matthew Lassar, Lassar, radio historian, to uh, go over uh, the year in review, looking back at 2019, the year that was. And I also want to point out we're starting a series beginning this week. Uh, at our website, radiosurvivor.com, looking back at the most important radio trends of the last decade. It's, it's a so new decade a to talk about. a lot more to talk about. Please go to radiosurvivor.com. We are a listener and reader-supported enterprise. Learn more about that at radiosurvivor.com radio slash su- support. <laughs> slash support. Radio Survivor is a podcast as well as a radio program that you can hear on terrestrial radio stations around the country. Uh, please subscribe to our radio program as a podcast wherever you get your programs. It's always free. Uh, on behalf of Paul Reese-Mandel and Jennifer Waits, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Well, we know as it comes to the end of the year, people are looking at uh, at, the, at the places where they spend their money and give their money. And we'd like to put a pitch out there for you to consider helping us out here at Radio Survivor. As we mentioned earlier, this is a listener and reader supported enterprise. Um, we depend on your contributions to keep the lights on, to keep the podcast distributed, uh, to keep the website going. Um, and... You know, we operate very efficiently, but every dollar you can contribute can help us continue to do what we do. We're always looking to stretch. You know, we are hoping to do more kind of documentary series. Yeah. Eric brought up that, that transition to FM radio, the big transition in the 1950s <laughs> I and am, 60s. I, I apologize to myself. <laughs> for, well, we'd love to do that. Promising on the air, but it would take. This was a thing I wanted to do. Well, yeah. but it, but it takes you know it takes more time than just a single interview. It takes more time and effort right. than us three coming together. It takes time to do the research to find uh, who we should be talking to, right, yes. um, and, and, and putting that all together. And when we have more uh, money at our disposal, uh, we can put more time into it. We can and we can go out and maybe do the legwork, possibly sometimes travel uh, that's needed to do. Uh, in order to accomplish this sort right. of thing. There are two ways to give, right, Paul? Yes. We, you can give a one-time donation via PayPal. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support to learn more. Um, but we really, what we really appreciate and what really helps us is that if you can make ongoing commitment of support to our Patreon, patreon.com slash radiosurvivor. Uh, we rewarded our $5 and up uh, donors and givers with a zine this past year. I'm hoping. I think we're going to do it again this coming it, year. It certainly was we fun. Should. Yeah, so it for sixty dollars a year, split up into monthly payments of five dollars. Well, you may get more than one zine in that yeah. period, right? Uh, uh, or or other sorts of. And and, we, and certainly, we'd like to know uh, what else would you like? It would right. if we could provide you if we had T-shirts or or stickers or some other kind of uh, very radio survivor kind of reward. We'd or, love to know what what would yeah. what would uh, what you'd appreciate receiving uh, in the. 
email. You can let us know, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. But certainly even a dollar a month means it's one more dollar that we can depend upon, um, and it really does add up. You know, one of the neat things about Patreon that Radio Survivor hasn't yet tapped into, but it's always in potential, is that Patreon is a website where uh, people who give a little bit of money to support a project can then have a certain kind of a special a little bit of supporter access to the creators. And that's something that I've always been interested in, like perhaps a Patreon Q&A, Patreon-only Q&A might be like... And if that is something that you uh, would find valuable... You can certainly let us yeah, know. Yeah, if you're currently uh, someone who is donating via Patreon, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Let us know, though, if that's something you would like uh, for us to do. And if you have not yet been able to give and maybe you've thought about it, is there something that would put you over the top? Is there something yeah. that would help you uh, make that decision that would really make it worth your while? We'd like to know as well. That being said, we have answered uh, viewer mail and listener questions uh, without any remuneration at all. It's actually something we really enjoy doing, and uh, I can never, I can never say one without the other. Go ahead and write us and uh, give us no money, and we'll still, we'll still probably answer. It's true. We do it for the love of radio and sound, so we, we like hearing from listeners and resp- responding to queries. We do our best. Yeah, and it's it's certainly on more than one occasion led to entire episodes of the radio program or blog posts on the website. Uh, hearing from listeners and readers is a real important part of what we do at Radio Survivor. Mm-hmm.